Hello, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Why Theory. As always, I am your host, Ryan Engley, joined, as always, by co-host Todd McGowan. Todd? How you doing, buddy? I'm doing excellent. Ryan, how are you? I am very, very... I'm well. Let me, let me say that. I am well, because we are going to talk about frequent frequent uh, Y Theory referent uh, and reference, uh, uh, Joan Kopchak. We are dedicating... And the only object of the Y Theory drinking game, I think. Right? <laughs> I've seen in the... Um, uh, I've seen in the reviews on the iTunes reviews, someone suggested to take a drink whenever we mention Hegel. And I thought to myself that would, that would be homicidal, uh, for, right, for us. Right, like, right. so like, don't cop do check is more of a, more of a, like a real drinking game. Like <laughs> yeah. you could, you could get by with like six drinks or something. Yeah, I think right, so. Right. I think right. so, but not in this episode. Maybe in this episode it should be Hegel. Uh, and not, right, because Hegel will be mentioned less because he's less of a point of reference for Joan. Yes, that's right. Yeah, which is going to be one of the things that we kind of uh, tease out here. Um, it's just, um, so we're talking about um, uh, Read My Desire, which is uh, Joan's landmark. First book. First book. It's just yeah. incredible. I, I said to you before the, before the show, this, this to me is like the great Gatsby of psychoanalytic literature. It's, uh, I think, every... Um, we're going to try to get through this, like, like try to go through like how she works through things. And I think like, it's like, like at the level of the sentences, like there's like, there's a, there's no fluff. There's, it's like, everything is to a purpose. Um, it's, uh, like every line, a line of poetry. Um, I, I, I it's really true. And yeah, Ryan, I mean, I, 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 it's one of those books that you're like, how did this not just blow everyone away? And I, I feel yeah. a little bit the same about Racecraft by the Field Sisters. Yeah. You know, how didn't this just like totally change the deal? Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is it's just sometimes books are just too good. They just can't. People just have no way to integrate mm-hmm. what the book is doing because it's so overthrowing the mm. a priori's that they are are operating with. So I think that was one thing. The other thing, I, Joan said to me once about this, about the first and last chapter, so orthopsychic subject and the and the sexuation ch- mm. uh, chapter, she said, I wanted to write a chap- essays that were so perfect that the people who they're opposed to just couldn't do anything. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that she succeeded. I think I, she really did in those two instances. It's interesting because I think maybe the, like, and, and this, um, it's interesting that that did not, uh, like, you could see in one way how that wouldn't be generative because it, like, closes down the, like, opposing side. But it's interesting that, like, I just, like, other people didn't pick it, pick it up, I guess. Or, or, or like, I mean, certainly you have and, and, and Slavoj Me, has. right. I'm, yeah. I'm one of the only ones. That's right. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting that, you know, so my book, The Real Gaze is obviously just incredibly indebted to that mm. orthopsychic subject or chapter, right? And, mm-hmm. and, but yeah, I just think, so, but, but that had been written, you know, like 13 years before my book came out. And, and mm. in that, in the, in that time, it really, and actually the essay came out before the Read My Desire did. So I think it came out even in the late 80s. So there, it, it's amazing that in that time, no one had really digested it with or dealt with that. And they just clung to this other mm. idea of the gaze, this, what she calls yeah. as a Foucauldinization of the Lacanian gaze. Mm-hmm. Um, they stuck to that and didn't really integrate Joan's contribution into, their, into the way they thought about film at all. You know, so that's, 
it's 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 it really I still I still have a hard I don't know about you but it's when I think about it I have a hard time getting my head around it you know yeah. I just I don't know it's it just seems too well I I guess it's one of those things where like um I mean she's she is just like personally like just so uh, important to me like I I don't know like I I I my 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 work is not my work without her and 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 her work um uh, and so it's like so for 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 me as a you know as a figure she dwells in unapproachable light and and it's hard for me to think that she does not for others um but uh but setting aside my the personal uh uh like debt that i that i owe her um her research and scholarship um it's like i i know the first time what that i read um I think in undergrad, I had a class where we read the introduction to this and it was literally uh, at the le- at the level of the line, it was hard for me to read and understand what, what it was hard for me what to do was to understand why she was saying the things she was saying. Like, right. and, 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 and I think that, um, so that's a thing, at least when I came, so when would I have read that, that maybe like 2010 or something like that? Mm-hmm um 2009 2010 and um and which is you know a, a little bit i i i'm going to say this one way and also it's not true like a little bit past the moment that she's speaking of but also not past the like the theoretical moment as we're going to get right. to um yeah. so I, I i didn't have the the debates in my head and maybe like or maybe what she maybe when we read that it the the setup could have been better in the class i don't really know but i know that for me like the it was just so and i know this now or like like looking at it now it's so tight and to a purpose what everything's doing is that like as i was reading it i felt like i didn't I felt like there was a lot happening and I wasn't getting almost any of it. And, uh, so that was, so that was hard for me. I don't know if that's, uh, actually, no, I do know, um, for, there was a, there's, I'm not going to name who this is, but there was a, like, there was a famous academic who I, I will tell you the story after the, um, this show. Um, and I'm sorry, listeners, I can't tell this now. <laughs> I'm, I'm very, very sorry. Um, but a famous academic, uh, mentioned something about, heard to me and I think he phrased it as uh, oh yeah like I know I know Joan I uh I'm how did he phrase it he said he's like I attempted to try to read something she read once that was how he phrased it like wow yeah yeah and he did it wasn't being insulting like he was like really it was just hard for him so I think so I don't know if that's if, if that's it but I mean like we're all, all we're all, all we do on on this podcast is talk about people who are hard hard to read hard to read right yeah. I mean I mean compared to Con and Hegel Joan's a uh, oh, easy to read, right? Walk in the, like walk I, in the park. I, I, yeah. 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 So, I mean, maybe the, the difference with Slavoj, I think, I don't I guess, think yeah. it's a difference of difficulty. It's that she doesn't have little jokes or little it's not analyses. Examples. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Injected in. It's really, mm-hmm. it's, it's highly theoretical throughout, which I, th- I, 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 I like that, but mm-hmm. I, I can see how for someone uninitiated, that would be, it would be off-putting maybe. I can mm-hmm. see that. And then, you know, but I, I think that like, let's just jump in and talk sure, about the yeah, introduction yeah. since you mm-hmm. you referenced it. Like, yeah. I think that one of the things that really struck me when I first read this book, I've read it maybe four or five times, uh, was that the way in which she defended transcendence mm. in the introduction. First of all, she defends this notion of Lacan's that, that structures actually do march in the streets, right? Mm-hmm, like that, mm-hmm. that she, she attacks the, the, the students who say structures don't march in the streets by saying, you know, actually they do. And then what she gets at, I think, and this is like, to me, this is the thing that then will run throughout the book that this, mm-hmm. 
She thinks the notion of imminence is a historicist notion that reduces mm-hmm. everything to its ex- to its cause, right? So that so that everything is just determined, and mm-hmm. that there's no production of something that to use another word from Lacan that she then will use a lot. No production of something that's extimate. No mm-hmm. no production of something that sticks out or transcends, right? And th- that's the so what she's interested in is the way in which there's something that doesn't work out within the structure mm-hmm. that then creates this opening for desire. And that's really for her how desire emerges is this, the failure within the structure, the failure within the law, rather than, and this will come up more in the second chapter, the orthopsychic subject chapter, that, that rather than the success, that desire isn't a result of the success of the law or the social order. It's the failure of it mm-hmm. that produces our desire. And that, I, I almost think yeah, that's kind of it right there. Like that's mm-hmm. the main, so, you know, the title is Read My Desire, but what is desire? It's this link between the failure of the structure and the emergence of desire, which transcends what the structure is trying to impose, right? Like that seems to me, it really... It's a book that bespeaks the radicality of desire in a way that I don't think any other book has done. Yeah, and it's uh, very impressive. And and to to my to me in rereading it for um, this episode, um, like kind of shocking to uh, like how she does it because I we've I've said on the show before, and um, I, I actually I'm not even sure. It's funny I don't know that it came up in the last episode, which is what we were talking about Zizek. But I've said of Zizek that he. Um, in his writing, he purposely gives himself a bad argument sometimes to kind of like dialectically overturn and show you right, right. like how it's doing like some other work. And I think Joan does it here and uh, in the intro and she does it in, I think, in the um, second chapter, especially uh, orthopsychic subject to an even like greater degree, like the like the idea of working with the, 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 the you know, the famous uh, May 68, like. Uh, structures don't walk in the street like to give her like it's not just uh, a bad argument but an unpopular one and right and 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 to sh- and so on that side she shows how it works in favor of lacan and then in orthopsychic subject she works with uh the a popular notion of uh the well the the surveilling gaze uh in in the panopticon the Foucauldian way uh way of of, of looking at things and also right. is it, how how should i pronounce his name is it bachelard or bachelard yeah bachelard okay and w- like out of fashion like 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 you, you know who's in fashion his student out to there bachelard right. not in fashion and to push to the end what the the, the logic entails for each and then to show where we butt up against uh, something to then begin to look at something that Lacan gives us that we could not have other otherwise. And I, and it's just, it's so, um, it's just, it's masterful. I don't know. It's like, I, like, I, I don't know. I read this book and it's like, 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 like you're, you're seeing someone put together a clock, like a antique clock, right, you know, right, like, right, and, right. and I, I think it's a, uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, just it's, yeah. So I mean, it's, it's hard. Starts, it's one of these things. It's going to happen to me. I think a number of times. It's. I think sometimes it's. 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 Uh, it is sometimes hard to talk about like a film or a song 
or or anything that like it means like a lot to you because you just end up saying like it's great and like I, I know, try I know, and when I, I when I teach I, I try to I try to make sure if I'm talking about a film that my ultimate point isn't isn't this awesome but a lot of the times a lot of the times it kind of is but so I I, so I, I want so I want to make sure that we're always coming back to why to to why it's awesome and, and, and yeah I think yeah. so so the very first like so she starts out this orthopsychic subject chapter with the notion that film theory has thought itself Lacanian, but hasn't been right. Mm -hmm. And then, and Mm -hmm. then she does this incredible reversal, I think, which is so good. And then kind of overturns the importance that mirror stage has had for film theory. Right. Because she says the, the screen film theory has wrongly conceived the film screen as a mirror. Mm -hmm. But Lacan actually conceives the mirror as a screen. And I think in a way, that's the whole argument of the chapter, right? Because in other words, we don't see, when we're looking at the screen, we don't see ourselves manifested there. And Mm -hmm. we don't see, there's not this, the camera isn't this panoptic gaze that sees us, Mm -hmm. right? Instead, it's, there's a screen which is shielding, she argues, the gaze, right? Like that's the, yes. that in a way the screen is a screen covering the, the, the gaze in the sense that she means it. And I think, you know, to, to me, the, the way in which, what's interesting is I always use, the, I differentiate between look, so the look of mastery, mm-hmm. and then the gaze is the object that, where, that is the disruption in what you see, right? Like mm-hmm. the point at which the, your desire is manifested in the, in the, in the image. And, and what's interesting to me is that the- And French, where your mastery fails, I just want to interject. That's very good. Yes. yes. Where your mastery fails. Exactly. Um, what's interesting to me is that French only has one word. So the word is le regard, mm-hmm. like, which we have the Latin as regard, right? To mm-hmm. regard something. So, so it's interesting that in English, you can actually make a distinction that French doesn't allow you to make. But I think that notion of gaze so dominated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And people love, I think what people really loved about it was its tie with mastery and power, right? And and I think- Can we do a a few minutes on this? Because it's really, I think it's really, really, really important uh, to, to get, like like as I was recounting, as an undergraduate and not fully understanding- the context, I think there are a couple things we're going to have to do, maybe particularly for this, for this chapter, um, but also for, for academia. Because the subtitle of this book is Lacan Against the Historicists. Against which, the Historicists. Which right, maybe right. seems like, oh, what a, like that, what a particular argument to lock yourself into. And the, I, I, I think particularly the American Academy, I would say even now, um, is, uh, like in the, I don't know, would you say mode of historicism? It's just, just it's the, the, the to dominant. me, the saddest thing about this book is that the subtitle is still totally appropriate. Yes. Yeah. It's still yeah. timely, right? Like yeah. it's still, like there's nothing has changed. And, and I think that that's, you're right, that that is really crucial to see that she's trying to attack historicism. And you're absolutely right to say that historicism is, you know, not just that Foucault was an historicist, which he was, but that mm-hmm. he, that conception of the panoptic gaze, this all-seeing gaze mm-hmm. that is looking at you mm-hmm. and that looks at the women on the screen, right? Because right. that's like the unmentioned opponent in this essay, ooh, which 
she had to go unmentioned because she was Joan's teacher yeah. for a while. Was is Laura Mulvey, right? Mm-hmm. So the 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 Mulvian, it's and, and also all of screen theory. So Baudry, Metz, they're they're she all names those. everybody but Laura Mulvey. But it's really know, but it's, Mulvey. It's, it's it's elegant what she tries to do. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, and I understand why she did that, yeah. and um, and 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 I I think there's, I think that. It's interesting because I think Mulvey is absolutely correct, obviously, about the patriarchal nature mm-hmm. of the cinematic structure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think, and, and it's interesting that Joan doesn't go down this road, but I think, because I think she didn't want to take on Mulvey, but yeah, yeah. I think you could say that the patriarchy manifests itself in the obfuscation of the gays yeah. <laughs> rather than in the manifestation of mm-hmm, it. And I mm-hmm. think that's what, that's what Joan would say. And I think that, you know, because her point is that this, that gaze is a historicist way of thinking because it reduces everyone to their context, right? Like yeah. you just are your social context and you are seen and mm-hmm. you are what you are seen to be. Yeah. Yeah. And this was a huge part. We, we've talked about this on, on different episodes before, but every time it comes up, I, I always think it's worth getting into because we have um cuz we have listeners in a lot of different places and the like the the state of the american academy uh, is not like the for the same time period is not exactly the, the state that it was in europe uh you know or um or south america or you know or el- just just elsewhere so like you know we um after um mari rudy we had that really great uh, exchange with um a uh, professor of uh, a feminist uh, film theory in Sweden, right? About like about Mulvey because like the the basically the the influence there uh, is just very different from how it played out here. And uh, I, I, anyway, so like what uh, Joan is responding to is the this you know this uh, piece that was mastery. No, that mastery was everything, right? No, I mean that's what it is. You're right, Ryan. Like that, that, that. Her, her. I think that's her main target, right? This mm-hmm, notion mm-hmm. that the gaze is mastery, and that we can understand everything in terms of power. I think that yeah. really is what she's trying to undermine, because I think that, that because her, what, what is the idea? Isn't her idea that if we understand everything in terms of power? What are we missing? Well, we're missing desire because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. D- desire emerges, her claim is, within in the gaps of power, not it's not the manifestation of power. And I think that to me, again, I mean I I already mentioned it, but I think that's one of the great ideas here that that she's able to see the way in which desire is emerges in what doesn't fit. Mm-hmm. It's not just what does fit. I think that that really is the I don't know, to me the really great the great breakthrough it's because she makes it power like what she um in not i think this is this is what what happens is that like she doesn't want to go after mulvey because i think well, again is her teacher but also i think she thinks what um happens in and this is specifically this is specifically the laura mulvey of visual pleasure and narrative cinema obviously like obviously she has written more than just that one essay and fetishism and curiosity is much different i think i think that is absolutely i think that's absolutely true yeah yeah and um but the i guess i don't know what the phrase would be like the preeminence like the dominance of that essay visual pleasure and narrative cinema in the u.s is like that's the reason why we 
talk about it, not because we're we're being reductive of Laura Mulvey, but just because bashing Mulvey, right? I, yeah. I I think that's right. I mean, I, I I think Mulvey, for instance, her reading of Citizen Kane, I think, is just unequaled. So I think, yeah, I, I want to. I think we should be very clear, not just for for. Anna Rogers, who was yes. the person who was <laughs> yes, right. who was said like, "Oh, you're a little little harsh and evolving." <laughs> um, and it was a very it was a great exchange. I thought, yeah. um, I am, but yeah. uh, but I but but just because I think just to be fair to Mulvey, like mm-hmm. I, she didn't ask for that essay to be taught universally, right? And no, I, I and, think and every- what Joan does this I mean, by not mentioning like by not mentioning that essay and not getting into it, I think what she is saying is that the mistake the mistake that's funny the mistake is Foucault's. Like, right. And, and, right. and that, and the mistake is that like what her, what she saw perhaps, maybe this is what she's saying, like by not mentioning is that she saw her professor get taken up in the discourse to use a Foucaultian word and mm. not l- like, uh, looking enough at the, at the frame. And for her, she does this really great thing with like, with, uh, power, power knowledge, which, uh, like I'm just read this from page 17 of the book. Um, okay. The, uh, the, I'm going to read like a whole paragraph because as I okay. said, th- this is the great Gatsby. So okay, um, yes, <laughs> the perfection, okay. the perfection of vision and knowledge can only be procured at the expense of invisibility and non-knowledge. According to the logic of the panoptic apparatus, these last do not, and in an important sense, cannot exist. One might summarize this logic, thereby revealing it to be more questionable than it is normally taken to be by stating it thus. Since all knowledge or visibility is produced by society, that is, all that it is possible to know comes not from reality, but from socially constructed categories of implementable thought. Since all knowledge is produced, only knowledge or visibility is produced, or all that is produced is knowledge, visible. This is too glaring a non sequitur. The then clauses are too obviously not necessary consequences of the if clause, for if it ever to be statable as such. And yet this lack of logical consequence is precisely what must be at work and what must go unobserved in the founding of the seeing-being-seen dyad that figures the comprehension of the subject by the laws that rule over its construction. This is the great Gatsby of psychoanalytic literature. What she's getting at and what she wants to say is that power, the power-knowledge dyad is a tautology. She says non-sequitur. But it's right. – it like – and this is the thing with, with Foucault that we talk about uh, – um, uh, well, whenever we talk about Foucault and power is that like, if like power is productive and it produces knowledge and then like, I'm not, I'm not trying not to be like simplistic and, and stupid about this, but like, if like, if, if as like, I'm going through what she just like worked, worked through like structurally, if it produces knowledge and then like knowledge, like those who have knowledge that they like produce power and power is like goes through everything, then like this relationship it seems to have no, it, it, it's either all cause or all effect. Like it doesn't right, have, right. It, it, there, there, there's something going on here. And she talks about it as that there's an if and then problem with these clauses. And then like, you know, and I mean, she even acknowledges in the ne- very much in the next sentence here, one can already imagine the de- defensive protestations. I have overstated my argument. There is a measure of indetermination available, even in the panoptic argument. But her point is that it's too, de- it's just too determinative. Right. And, and then, yeah. and then she's, I, I love how then she goes through Foucault's attempt to say, well, there's multiplicity right. of different subject positions and that disrupts the functioning of power. But Kopchak's like, actually it doesn't. Yeah. Like it's not multiplicity. I mean, it's an interesting 
anti-Foucault, anti-Delusian point because mm-hmm. she says it's not multiplicity. She doesn't use the word, but it's contradiction that yeah. actually disrupts power. And, and the, the, the fact that the what she calls the panoptic argument can't see this, she says it's resistant to resistance. I think that's yeah, really... that's a, a great, great line. It's a and, great phrase. And, you know, it's what's fascinating to me is that Foucault was himself... I mean, okay, let's... Just to be clear, Foucault grew up a con- for a long time was a conservative, right? So mm-hmm. he came to radical action very late in his in his life. But okay, when he did, he was he was very invested in in radical politics, right? Mm-hmm. But but his theory if he followed his own theory, he shouldn't have been, right? Yeah. Like yeah. I think it's a fascinating case where I think when people think of and I think people think of Foucauldian thought as very politicized. Mm-hmm. And they think if I'm following Foucault, I'm going to be, I'm a politicized being. But I think that's not true. And I think it's because they glom onto the figure of Foucault, the revel, the, the yeah. radical marching mm-hmm. and not what Foucault actually says that they, that they missed that. I mean, I've always found it funny that, that he would campaign for prison reform when if you read Discipline and Punish, he should have been campaigning for their for, for a return to punish for make things harsher you know like it's you, you, Joan, yeah Joan makes this this point in this chapter that like for him with as as regards desire that like law like desire does not pre-exist the law law and and this as you know one of his famous things is that like uh the law has to generate what it aims to suppress which is not not just implies but relies on the the desire not having been there before that like people right. th- their desiring position is produced incited created by law and this is like all the like this is what in that long paragraph this is like the consequences of what like Joan is getting at is that like if like the law and, and this is just what you just said the law for Foucault and what he wrote is this productive like like uh like apparatus and but then in his politics it's repressive and in it but purely so in 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 his practical politics it's like we need you know we need a a loosing of of laws but in his writing the law is this like great productive mechanism for which yeah 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 yeah. i think it's a it's such a good point but isn't it what's interesting though that she then goes on to say if the law was so effective in producing desire Mm -hmm. or realizing itself in desire, I think is how she puts it. Mm -hmm. Um, Why would we need self-surveillance at all? (laughs) Right. Like, like, like her argument, I think this is the best argument against Foucault's position is the very self-surveillance that he himself describes Mm -hmm. is itself an attestation to the fact that the law wasn't totally effective in producing desire that mm-hmm. fits perfectly within the parameters of the law, right? Like that's mm-hmm. the, I, I just don't know how a Foucauldian would, would refute that point. Like it seems like yeah. it's, a, it's a place where Foucault himself shows a fissure mm-hmm. within the law's causality, right? Like mm-hmm. the, it produces a desire that it can't contain, which is why we need the law needs recourse to impose self-surveillance on people, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I don't know what one would say to that. And again, I think this is one of the things that's so 
powerful about this book and this chapter is that it's 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 really hard to see how you would how you would fight against it. Yeah, right? like, yeah. You know, I mean, she she's I don't know that people have heard her speak in person, but she's a great speaking in person because she'll get these questions, which are oftentimes you can see how her work generates kind of hostility, uh, <laughs> and 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 she gets hostile questions and. And she often answers, and I, I've I've always really admired this. In a really like, she'll just say, someone will say like, doesn't doesn't Foucault blah 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 blah? And she'll just go, no, no. <laughs> and so it's really, <laughs> I've always just admired that so much. I have to say that like they'll get these long involved questions, that, and then she'll just turn it into a yes or no, and just and just leave it at that because I think she's feels like she's already said, mm-hmm. she's already gone through what she needed to say. Yeah, like the the I mean on the the and may, perhaps um it would have been per, perhaps perhaps it would have been useful to explain the panopticon before we started talking about the position. But um I, I think it's I don't know I think it's like generally in culture. But like the like Foucault takes this from uh, Jeremy Bentham's like Bentham, model right. for for a, for a prison where the it, it's just in this circular shape and the 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 inmates never know if they are being surveilled by the one uh guard in this position. in the middle tower in, in right. the middle tower because they can't see it so it's every like so, the guard but, can see them everywhere they are but they can never see the guard right right and so what's what joan uh wants to talk about so that 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 is the, the model of the surveilling gaze and i think it's a pretty prominent one now yeah i think yeah i think that's yeah. i think that's popular discourse about the NSA, um, you know, in the spying that, uh, you know, I'm sure they're doing on our phone call right now, Todd. Uh, right, the, right. You know, and, Let's hope and, they have Y theory under surveillance. I hope so, man. That'd be great. What can, I, I, can I just say, I think I've said it on the show before, and I'm sorry for interrupting you on this, but <laughs> no, it's okay. when Slavoj got asked by this guy, it was, I think it was Paul something in Denmark, and mm-hmm. he like went on this long thing about how surveillance has gotten so much worse. And he goes, doesn't that horrify you? And Slavoj's just like, no. It doesn't, he goes, it doesn't bother me at all. He goes, with all the theoretical texts I'm sending, he's like, he's like, the, 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 the secret service looking at it, he goes, it'd be like giving Hegel's logic to a cow. He said, they'd probably have it upside down when they're reading it. I just, I have to say, I think that's just such a great statement about the, 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 I mean, it's really a statement about the panoptic gaze, right? And about that kind of surveillance. Well, I, I think it's that, I think there's, the, there's a thing like to try to, to try to use Jones method and, and kind of like to work forward with it. I think what, yeah. ends up, I think what ends up happening is people get in this position where they're like, I don't know what my metadata says about me because I don't, I can't see it and I don't know what it looks like, but the government is these agencies are collecting all of it. Therefore, they know things about me that I don't even know. And it's like, mm, but the first thing you said was that you don't know what your metadata says about you. And I think what ends up happening is people invest in this idea that because we get these targeted ads and we and, and these things, there's this great Netflix series called Maniac that begins... Like one of the first lines is uh, a, a character wants to pay for cigarettes with, um, and here I'm doing Slavoj instead of Joan because I'm using a pop culture example. Um, yes. And it, like a character wants to pay for cigarettes with this thing in the world called an ad buddy, which is like basically like if you could 
be in uh, like it just if you haven't seen the show i'll just say i'll just render it this way like if you got money for the data that you generate you were paying with that and the guy behind the teller says or the, the cashier says like you know that they they have a widespread database of desires right they know things about you that you don't even you know and it's like that's what people say about netflix that they have all the, this algorithm and they know things about you you don't like you they know what you want in a show and and do you know what netflix does they just they're a b minus factory that's what they do and right. but but people because they don't know what's in the data they they think it's everything and 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 so what the initial the initial step, the initial like kind of problem in this is to imagine like, yes, the government, the spying regime is like quantifiably more widespread than it has been in the past. There is, yes, way more data than there has ever been uh, being collected in, you know, in Utah. They made this like this giant plate with just like a huge amount of computer storage to hoover up all this information. It literally there is more information quantifiably from that. But the only way that it is like, I think an existential problem is if you imagine that's all there is to know and see about you. Right. Is in right. your that, data, is in your and, metadata. Yeah. And, and I think you have to believe to bring it back to even the title of Joan's work. Yeah. That, that the NSA knows how to read your desire. It's a but great point. The, yeah. The problem is that they're cops, right? And then she get as she gets to it in these later chapters, when she's talking about purloin letter. Oh yeah. Like mm-hmm. that's what the cops miss. The reason the cops in, in Edgar Allan Poe's The Purloin Letter can't find the letter, which is hiding in plain sight, mm-hmm. is because they don't read the desire of the minister, right? They just yeah. look in all the symbolic spaces. And that's in the end, Foucault is like a cop, right? Like he doesn't he doesn't try to read desire, and that's mm-hmm. what her point is that you you can only find the subject yeah. when desire. you read the desire, right? And so and that's why not through information or not not through information, right? No matter yeah. how much data you collect. And if you think about it, you know, like all these things are so stupid. Like Amazon, I, I was shopping for one thing. And so then they put up an ad for that and the very, okay, yes, clearly that is true. Yeah. I was looking for that very thing, but they don't try to ever see like, oh, well, he looked at, he looked at a book on Hegel's logic. So let's give him a book instead on Schleiermacher because <laughs> he was a critic of Hegel. So yeah. maybe he would find that in time and that might've worked, right? Yeah. So, but they're never... The algorithm doesn't ever try to read your desire. Well, to, right? yeah, I mean, because like, your desire yeah. is not algorithmic. That's her mm-hmm. point. Nice. No, really well put. Like it just like in two two things on that. Like one, if you if you notice the panopticon, it's not working. Like let's right. like I think that's a, like just an incredibly basic but really important point. Yeah. But like um, secondly, like in practicality. Um, you know, there are two things that I'm most proud of that I've like written or said. One was at the height of uh, Governor Cuomo's um, popularity, doing an episode with you where I called him a zaddy fascist. And then it comes out much later that he uh, maybe not the liberal uh, Democratic darling, but a lot closer to being a fascist. So that that's quite, true. That's that, true. That, you were you were prescient on that. I was pre- prescient yeah. on that. So that I feel really good about. Um, but the, the second one was, um, you know, years ago, I uh, wrote this essay in a, that ended up in a collection called um, Ken. Uh, wait, what is it? Ken. Cause I wrote about surveillance. Oh, can philosophy love? That's the name of the collection. And yeah. I wrote, I wrote about love and surveillance. And, um, I have a line from 
former the uh, the former uh, director of the NSA, I think it was uh, Keith Alexander, and he is saying that like these like he was asked by Congress how many cases has this uh, has this massive spying regime like helped you crack? And at the time, he said it was like f- over fifty. And then he was asked about it later and admitted it was one or two. And I have this line. I'm so proud of it. He said, we all know that probably means that that, that means closer to zero. And I think in <laughs> italics and like a, last year, he admitted it was zero. So yes. like so like so I was really happy. I was really happy about that. But that's the thing. Like you read these cases about and again, this isn't just in like in the in the practical sense of this, this like this surveillance gaze. Oh, it knows everything. Oh, it sees everything. Like how many times do you hear like the Boston Marathon bombers, like they were given over to the FBI like twice and, and like, like people gave tips and they, they didn't, they did nothing. They got direct tips. Like this happened, you know, there, um, uh, this kind of thing happens all the time is that like the FBI and the CIA get directly tipped off, tipped off by people who later go on to commit terrorist acts and they did nothing with it. And that's like not even that that's that's like that's like old school, like like right, a right, beat right, cop right. stuff. Like right. like that's direct information. That's not even these like these things. And the reason is like people go into it and I think that you, you can get atomistic about it. But like the, the reason why it plays out this way is that when you collect th- that much data, you just have so much noise, as they say, right, to, right. to sort through. And so it's like the thing. So there's like two things, right? In like in Slavoj's thing, like yes, all this data being like collected is like it's that's it's a it's a civil rights violation, like absolutely. But like, right. does sure. that mean that the the NSA suddenly knows everything about you, things that you don't know? Absolutely not. And you shouldn't think that about yourself. That like that it's all reducible to metadata. And so it's like I think this is like kind of the the Hegelian twist on it is like the act itself is like of, of surveilling. It is. It is uh, repressive, but like, whoa, what, what, it, what does it actually say about you? And so that's the, and, I, and it's that um, kind of tautology in the logic of the panopticon at all that Joan is, is getting at with the, right, the, the right, gaze right. in this chapter. Right. And that, and that for her, what I think is, yeah, I just think this, the point that she stresses again and again and again, that it's the fault yeah. in the law. Yeah, that through which the subject emerges, not mm-hmm. not the the success of the law. Yeah, it's interesting how that. I think this focus on it's just runs throughout the book, right? This focus on failure, mm-hmm. fault, mm-hmm. Uh, inability, like all that, and, and I think what 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 stands out to me is that this is this indicates her radical Kantianism, right? Like mm-hmm. that. Like, as you said, like this could be a show where you could Hegel could be the drinking game because <laughs> Joe Joe never makes reference to Hegel, right? Like, yeah. and, and that's an interesting. It's interesting that she and Slavoj could be such good friends because that they're, like his fundamental point of reference is not like it is for her Kant, and I think mm-hmm. for her this that 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 Hegel in some way I think betrays the way in which it's the failure that is what allows desire and subjectivity to emerge that Hegel kind of closes that by and what all Hegel does is say that failure is itself a success like mm-hmm, when subject mm-hmm. emerges through the failure that's a success like that's all he says yeah yeah but i think i think for her that's a bridge too bridge so to speak it's a bridge <laughs> too far right like it it just it, it closes off what she th- sees in kant remaining this 
open wound. I th- almost think it's that. It's like mm-hmm. an op- she wants to sustain an open wound, yes. whereas Hegel wants to say, well, this wound is also the structure itself. Right? I, like that, yeah. No, Todd, I think that's, uh, I think you cracked it. I think that that's like a thing. Um, I, I, I don't know. I hope that for listeners that, 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 that did something that, that it did for me. I mean, she, I've said this on the show, like I've gotten emails about this before that, um, I don't know if she said in class or she put this in, this was the description of a, of a class that I took with her, but she's, um, for me. And I think through our show, uh, I, I've said this, that, uh, she says psychoanalysis is a wound is, is a wound to thought that must constantly be reinflicted. And that's not written anywhere. I, I've gotten email, a lot of emails before. Like where, where does Joan say this? Like what I say, where can I find that, that idea? I find that so interesting. And, um, as far as I know, she hasn't written like that. It's not published or public anywhere. And I haven't been able to find it in my own materials that I have from taking a couple yeah. classes with her. Um, but, um, I, I know that she's thought of putting these these things together. She, I mean, she's emailed. She said that to me, but but it's nowhere. But but that's I think you're right. Like like sustaining the wound, I think is is uh, for her the wound to thought is exactly what's at stake. And like I yeah, I want to pick up from there because she does mention. I mean, she does mention Hegel and then stop uh, in 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 or the psychic subject. And it's an interesting reference and it's worth going into. But there there one thing that I want to just talk about before is that like with she has this, um, on page 30, she has this little, um, uh, she has this thing that I think is really important. Uh, what we have is, this is after, we haven't talked about the bachelard part. It's a huge part of this chapter, but it's, it is, yeah. but, but, uh, she, I mean, that's where the title of the chapter comes from. The orthopsychic part. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She said, yeah, our, our detour through orthopsychism has not led only to a dead end. What we have forcibly been led to consider is the question of deception of the suspicion of deception that must necessarily be raised if we are to understand the cinematic apparatus as a signifying apparatus, which places the subject in an external relationship to itself. Once the permanent possibility of deception is admitted, rather than disregarded, as it is by the theory of the panoptic apparatus, the concept of the gaze undergoes a radical change. For where in the panoptic apparatus the gaze marks the subject's visibility, in Lacan's theory it marks the subject's culpability. The gaze stands watch over the inculpation, the faulting and splitting of the subject by the apparatus. And so there are a couple things really important here. One is uh, you already talked about it, which is the failure is, is uh, that, you know, that she says uh, the, um, the subject's culpability, the faulting, it's not just the splitting, but the faulting and the splitting of the subject by, um, by the apparatus. And the, the fault is, is nice because it's two things. It plays on, um, I think she's underrated for her wordplay uh, because it's also failure, like fault, like fault in our, like fault in our stars, and also like a fault line, you know, like right, a, like a right, fissure, right, you know, right. like so. So that's so that's really nice. But the second thing that that um, the for the panoptic gaze to work as a concept, you have to imagine it as an objective gaze, is not just object, but also like outside, and the that idea like if we're talking about the objective and lacanian psychoanalysis we're talking about subject object relations and for you and i as hegelians subject is object object is subject like that's that's how that works so there's not this um there is no meta language there is no space outside of space by which you can occupy to critique what's going on so there's not objective there is external though 
There is there right. you 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 know there is the estimate to the subject. There is it's mm-hmm. and it's an outside, but it's not an objective space. It's 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 this this um, intimate external this estimate space, as like as Lacan would say, um, where where you like like uh, a you you cannot have is manifested uh, right. again outside of yourself, not in an objective space, in an external space. And I think that 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 is a, a really that's I think that's an important. Uh, I don't want. I don't think the word "split" is appropriate here, but that's just an important concept to observe. Is to like what right, and also then, pushing back against is the objectivity that a lot of times occasions historicism. Right, right. I think that's right. I think well, right. I mean, her point about historicism is that it writes the subject out of the story. Yes, mm-hmm. right. In but this, then I in think this you're right. Of a kind of a phony objectivity. I, I would right, say. right, yeah. right. But I think you're right that then this sets up the whole her her little mention of Hegel, right? Yeah. Like the. And and it's funny that she so I think we've talked about before, but we'll discover this. So in seminar eleven, Lacan gives two basic examples of the gaze. One is the the painting by Hans Holbein called the Ambassadors, mm-hmm. and it's where there's this blot in the front part, middle of the painting. And if you look at the painting from the really close to, to the to the image and from the upper right, it looks you can look down on it. It's an anamorphic skull. Mm-hmm. And so that's his one of his examples of the gaze. The other one comes in a story that he tells about uh, going when he was a young intellectual. Just I think he just come at, graduated from university. He went down and worked with some fisher people mm-hmm. <laughs> in the in the south of France, right? And he uh, and he when he was there, he was out on the sea and he was with this guy he calls Petit Jean. Mm-hmm. And Petit Jean, there's a little story and, and he tells about it and he sees a, a, a sardine can glimmering in the light. And Petit Jean says to Lacan, the young Lacan, he says, do you see that can? You see it, but it doesn't see you. And mm-hmm. the point was, you don't fit within this. You think you're so big, so important. You don't fit within this world. You have no place within it. So that was his story. And and then what it's what's interesting, and so Joan calls this a Hegelian, she calls it a mock Hegelian epic, right? Right. And 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 she's and she actually sees it as a critique of Hegel that the story mm-hmm. sets Hegelian themes adrift and awash in a sea of bathos. Mm-hmm. And it's because she sees this failure of that this sardine can represents this failure of the gaze, right? Like, or the gaze as failure. Like he, he isn't seen by it. Like he doesn't fit within, it's not a panoptic gaze, Mm. right? Like that's her, that's her idea. But (laughs) what's interesting is, so she ends her analysis with this what Petit Jean says to to Lacan, which is, she says this, a horrible truth revealed to Lacan by Petit Jean is that the gaze doesn't see you. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking f- for confirmation of the truth of your being or the clarity of your vision, you are on your own. The gaze of the other is not confirming. It will not validate you. Yes. Okay. So, okay, that's fine. Except after Lacan recounts Petit Jean saying that, he then goes on a couple paragraphs later in Seminar 11 and says, but all the same, the the sardine can did see me. 
right? Mm-hmm. So, and I, I, and what he means by that, and this comes to a really important idea, is that I am also, and this is a, I think, Hegelian idea, mm-hmm. that I am, all, I am in the picture, or in the image, in the form of the gaze, right? right. Like it, it is this disruption that my desire enacts on what I see, and it manifests itself in the gaze, and and. I think that's what Lacan says in Seminar 11. It's interesting to me that Joan doesn't follow him there, but I think it's because of this Kantian versus Hegelian dynamic. It's really, really, really interesting because the, and and this is like, I, I, I wonder, um, I mean, this is, this is a little inside, this is a little inside academia, but you know, we're we're trying to, as, as we do with everything, we're trying to engage uh, with, uh, with these works. Like this is like, they're, they're, they're maybe not a figure with whom we more like profoundly agree than Joan. I right. mean, like even more so than, uh, than, than Slavoy, I think on a right. lot of things. Right. I think but, that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. But even, but even here, this is like, you know, um, you know, I think if, if Y theory had a, um, if, if we could, if we could paraphrase Michael Corleone, it's not personal, it's strictly theory. Like that, that, <laughs> right. that's, that's what, what's happening here is that like for, for Joan's analysis to sustain the the Kantian point, the it cannot admit, like she. I mean, she didn't even bring the the line in here. The like the picture is in my eye, but I am in the picture. I am in the picture, right? And like it, I'm in the picture in the form of the gaze. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, so, and that it, just that that you're right. That line doesn't doesn't figure in what she's saying because it's a it's a Hegelian point about the way the failure is gets turned into a success, right? Like yeah, it doesn't cease yeah. being a failure. Right. But that failure is a form of success for Hegel, not for Kant. Like right. Kant wants to insist there are these fundamental failures, mm-hmm. like which she will talk in the final chapter, the antinomies of pure reason, right? Like, and, yeah. and, and what's interesting is Hegel's take on those antinomies is those aren't the... Those aren't the limits of reason. Mm-hmm. They're the success of reason. Right, 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 right. Like that's the, so, so I don't think, I, and I think, I don't think Joan would say that because I think this, the, she thinks if you make that step mm-hmm. and you turn the failure into the success, then you lose touch, I think she would say, with the necessity of the failure. Yeah, yeah. And I also think that um, if you, what this, for this argument, right, where she what she's putting is the like the um the f- failures of the panoptic gaze on one side and why we need to move past it. Um, and one of the failures of it, like a central one, I mean, especially the, as it plays out in contemporary discourse on surveillance, is that like the a position of mastery is always embodied, that like this right. gaze is always embodied in an institution or in a in a person. Um, and to include the picture is in my eye, but I am in the picture, um, that embodies the gaze a little bit. It's certainly not in the same way. Absolutely not in the same way. It is not like that's not the institutional gaze. That's not a gaze of mastery, but it still embodies it. And I think it does. I think for her and, and for the way that she makes this argument that it's too close to Foucault. I think she thinks that. Yeah. The the what Lacan himself does, even though I think she thinks she's being true to Lacan, but I think if mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if we point out these passages to her, I think she would say, yeah, those, that does he does say that. But I think she would say he's moving too close yeah. to Foucault. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting because you know, 
What's funny is Henry Cripps has an essay where he tries to reconcile Joan, me, Foucault all together, like to say, Mm -hmm. oh, you're wrong to be so critical Mm -hmm. of Foucault. And I think, I think, I think that's what she's wary of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, she's wary of this, like, let's reduce the difference to just, oh, we can just, you know, whatever. Yeah, no. So no, I think th- that that's, I, I, at least I, that seems to me to be the motivation. Like, it would give too much to, and also, and also it moves, I mean, this is the primary thing. Like, I mean, we are going to, because it's just going to be so important to talk about sex and the euthanasia of reason, where Kant, like, the whole reason for, um, I mean, and this is the reason why we want to uh, like kind of set this up now is because later when we talk about that um, chapter and or that essay, like uh, before it was a chapter, uh, the is Kant is her way of working through the formulas of sexuation for Lacan, which you and I have in previous. I mean, when we were talking with Mari as well, like we don't ha- have that much uh I don't want to say use. That's too it's, investment. We, it, okay, there you go. Thank, nicely done. We don't have that much investment in the formula. Sexual difference, yes. In in the in the formulas themselves to get there, less so. So, but we're gonna try to. We're gonna do this like you know for like as Joan represents it. You yeah. Know, like yeah. And, and and the way and and what's crucial is Kant. So she can't. So this is the thing. If you if you read and you think in the way that. Um, you know, there's this great cliche about um, uh, excellent, like great works of literature is that like great books teach you how to read them. Yes. That, like like if great works of theory teach you how to read them. And, and if you are paying attention and absorbing the lesson that the way to read Joan, like you, she cannot include that line, that Hegelian line, because it's not just too far. Not It's not just too close to, to Foucault. It's too far from Kant. And, too far from Kant, yes. and that that and and to move to the, like a Hegelian reading of the gaze here in the first chapter would hurt her later in the la- in the latter. I think that's to right. Her. I think that would. Yeah, I think that I think would, it's interesting. You know, yeah, I think there's a lot to talk about with that because, like Slavoj's relationship, Slavoj, of course, who is much more Hegelian identified, his relationship to the formulas. Is is like it's different than Jones, I think. Although mm-hmm. it's also parasitic relative to Jones. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I I don't know. So I think that 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 will definitely be something worth talking about. I wonder if we could move on to cutting up because so this Actually, is the third I want, chapter. I want to do a thing. I want to blow your mind a little bit. Okay, dude, blow my mind. Okay. I want to blow your mind. Um. So in that so in the section that the last one that we talked about which is where she yeah. mentions uh she mentions Hegel um at the end of this she she says this the gaze is that which determines the eye and the visible and then she's going to quote Lacan here the instrument through which the eye is photographed this might be taken to confirm the coincidence of the Foucauldian and Lacanian positions to indicate that in both, the gaze determines the complete visibility of the eye, the mapping of the eye on a perceptual grid, hence the disciplinary monitoring of the subject. But this coincidence can only be produced by a precipitous snapshot reading of Lacan, one that fails to notice the hyphen that splits the term photograph into photo, light, and graph, among other things, a fragment of the Lacanian phrase graph of desire, as it splits the subject that it describes. And so... This I like. She she goes into a she splits 
photograph into photo and graph and shows yeah. what these two terms have uh, like do for Lacan. And later she'll go into the like formulas of sexuation are a graph. So you can tell how important this is, but here's where I want to blow your mind. Okay. She, she focuses on the hyphen between photo and graph as, as separating these terms, meaning we need to understand their relations separately and then together and how that overturns any notion of an, a, a a mastering panoptic gaze. Well, do you know what she does earlier in, I don't, I, I only noticed this this first time on, uh, on page 26, she writes, she has this, when she talks about orthopsychism, how then to derive a properly psychoanalytic, that is, a split subject, from the premise that this subject is the effect rather than the cause of the social order? Um, do you know what she's done? This is, like, so subtle. It's a, it's a level of punctuation. Split subject has a dash. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's not a hyphen. It's a dash. And, and this may, again, this may seem really, really little, but as I've said from the beginning, this is the great Gatsby. This is like everything is like every line, there is a purpose and a point to it. So we cannot, if, if, if we cannot, uh, fail to note the hyphen in Lacan, we cannot fail to, to, to mention and note the dash in Joan Kopchak. This splits, this dash that splits the subject, this is a cut into the line, into the text itself, into the page. And so yeah. what's Joan, what Joan is doing visually is showing this subjective relation through punctuation. And I think it's yeah. like... That's I, amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. It's also a great transition to cutting up. <laughs> because, <laughs> there we go. Yeah, like we planned it. <laughs> because, yeah, I mean, I think that that idea... So her idea is like, right, that, that the social doesn't fully cause the subject, mm-hmm. but the social always includes a cut within it, right? Like yes. the social, that, 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 that civil is, what does she say? Like that civilization, the social is interposed between subject and real, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like a screen put up before, in front of the real. And so the subject is constantly trying to navigate that. And, the, mm-hmm. and, the, and it's through the points of cut that we get access to the real. Uh, well, this is, I mean, Joan's really good on this, um, that like this relationship where, uh, that, that she notes in, in Freud's particularly, well, I mean, really in two places, I think we've talked about it before. Um, the, uh, group psychology, um, in the, in the, in the ego and then uh, civilization is discontent. Um, where what Freud is, is noticing is that like the, the group is inflected in the individual and the individual inflected in the group. Like, and so right. you can't, so you, there cannot be this like unary constructivist kind of point where there's social order, then there's individual like, like, and, and this go, I mean, I think this goes back even to, um, how she plays at the kind of the tautology in the panoptic gaze, which is like, there seems to be no, if then there seems to be no, there's either, there's either no cause or it's all cause, or there's, it's just, there's no effect and it's all effect like that. Right. Is it, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What, I mean, that's a really good. I mean, what's interesting to me is that she's, this chapter seems to, it's so, so Bergson is really one of the main yeah. targets in this mm-hmm. chapter. And, mm-hmm. and she's really attacking here. It's interesting because so it goes from Foucault in the previous chapter to Bergson here. And it's really about this notion, this vitalist notion that there is mm. some, you know, that life is, there's a vitality to life itself, right? And mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. she's trying to say instead that we only get vitality with the cut. 
Yes. And I, I, I and then, or the gap that's created by the signifiers like that, that. And so it's only through that negation, that cut, that gap that we actually get access to the vitality, that there's not a natural vitality precisely because signification and the, the, layer of the signifier is mortifying for her, mm-hmm. right? Like it, mm-hmm. like there's no, she says somewhere like enjoyment cannot survive within the mortifying structure of the signifier, like something like that. Right. So, mm-hmm. so for her, there it really only is in these moments of the gap that we get access to the vital. And then she, she ends with this, I think, amazing critique of Derrida mm. where she says, look, all of Derrida's play, what he doesn't understand is that the play depends upon the closure of the totality, yes. not the openness, right? Yeah, like that, yeah, yeah. which I thought is just such a great point that for what she's saying is that the closure makes evident the gap. Mm-hmm. That if you think of this kind of infinite openness that Derrida wants to privilege, you miss. I mean, in Hegelian terms, you would say you miss the contradiction, but what she would say is you miss the cut or the gap. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if, have you ever heard these, um, these stories? I think I've, I've heard them in different ways and on, on, on Twitter about Derrida to the point that I, I actually, I don't think any of them happened, which is, (laughs) which is that, um, someone tweeted, this is like several years ago. This got like a little bit of traction on, on academic Twitter that uh, a professor of theirs was in the, um, in the, bathroom and at a conference and like Jacques uh, Derrida uh, was in there washing his, washing his hands. And the professor said to, to, to Derrida, like, uh, Oh, like, you know, I just want to tell you, like, you're such an influence for me. You're so great. I, uh, I want to, I know, I, I want to know. I, it's just interesting. Like for all you have to say, you don't talk about cinema and Derrida goes, Ugh, Americans and cinema, they put it on everything. They put it in food. You put it in coffee, you put it on toast. And, what had happened was he had misheard it as cinnamon. Cinnamon, right. Okay, right. and then there's another one where someone, this was much more recent, where someone tells this the story of being at a conference, like one of his last speaking engagements, and maybe, again, maybe this happened, maybe both happened, maybe neither did, but like the, um, the, the thing that connects them is going to be the thing worth talking about, is that um, Derrida gives this amazing, uh, c- kind of baffling, but, but articulate, uh, talk on cows and everyone is just like they're taking they're being intently taking notes and he breaks for an intermission and he comes back and says i've been told it's pronounced chaos <laughs> and i think these things work really good as jokes i it doesn't matter if they happen but i think right, it's to right. joan's point which is like um it kind of works against Derrida, which is like in bo- in these two jokes or things that really happened, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Like the thing he said, it doesn't it doesn't work. So clearly, not all signification can slide because it doesn't it doesn't work. There's no there's not a, there's not a sense making element to it. What right. the sense making element is is when you get the punchline, is you can see right. and, and you can see you can see the slip, but that slip was not evident before the punchline. And right, because the punchline is functioning as the quilting point, which exactly. Derrida doesn't have a theory of. It doesn't right? have a theory for it. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, if, and 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 is very much um, against. against. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah. so yeah. So and I think I so I think you know. Um, and and she has a lot. Like I know, like she has a lot of affection for 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 Derrida. She, I mean, she thinks that what he writes about uh, Mystic Writing Pad is like 
like the best thing anyone's written on Mystic Writing Pad. And uh, so like, but it's, this is where um, in, uh, to, to her and in this system of meaning making signification and sense making, like he airs in, right, in, right. in, in, in imagining this kind of, in imagining this, this, this infinity of, uh, uh, of meaning that, that cannot be sustained. Uh, right. and, and it, in fact, you know, it can only be, it can only be sustained by, as in the jokes, it can only be sustained by, um, you know, saying the proper signifiers right. for, for the things that, that you're, that you're remarking upon, uh, you know, cinema and not cinnamon chaos yeah. and not cows. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's really good. I mean, those, those are really revelatory because, I think they show exactly Joan's point that it's the cut mm. that actually creates the play, right? Like that's yeah, yeah, yeah. what's what's funny. I mean, it, like the play isn't the infinite openness. Mm-hmm. The play is through the cut, and I think yeah. that that's really yeah. And as punchline in those, which is interesting because right. which is because Bergson's thing is on laughter, and she talks about jokes in relation to the unconscious yeah. uh, in this in that chapter. So like like you get. You don't get the. You think you're reading. A, you think you're reading an anecdote, and then you get play later, right? right when the right, right, quilting right, right, point, right, right. Uh, when the cut of the quilting point uh, emerges. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting that she doesn't talk about the quilting point there when she's talking. I mean, it's kind of implied. I think. I guess so. Yeah. Not, yeah. 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 And then she turns. I mean, the, one of the things we're, we're we're treating this book. I mean, I think there is a clear overriding logic of desire as what doesn't fit in with the mm-hmm. the law, but. Mm-hmm. It is a very these chapters were all written separately and mm-hmm. and some of them were published separately and it, and, and it is a very I would call it an episodic if it was a television series it's not a <laughs> yeah. serial it's episodic right like yeah. there there's a there's a real cut between which is likely intentional a real cut between each each chapter and then this this one of the middle ones the sartorial superego is I think one of the strangest ones because. She first of all she talks about uh, Clarembo, who is a, a French psych- psychiatrist and mm-hmm. was one of Lacan's, not his primary. Kojev, I think, was the primary teacher, but one of Lacan's teachers. And and she gets she gets fascinated by the fact that he took forty thousand photos of Moroccan clothing, and mm-hmm. this ends up destroying his career. I think like this <laughs> this fetish that he has, yeah, and. What's interesting is that for for her, the fetish is something that is revelatory, right? Like mm-hmm. it doesn't – it's not just – this isn't just like an example of French colonialism for her. Right. Right? Like that – that, and I think that's what's that, – that, that in, in a way, Claire Ambeau is showing the fault within French colonialism, which is, I think, it's attraction to – Moroccan enjoyment manifested in the clothing, right? Yeah. Can can I give a can I give a line? Yeah. B- because yes. this goes back to so this is on one thirteen. Um, in the uh, this book fell out of print for a while. Um, it did. It and, did. Uh, uh, shame shamefully. Can um, I tell you something yeah, that so I had um, so maybe this is maybe ten twelve years ago. This was when it was out of print. Mm-hmm. A student uh, wanted to of mine was looking to buy it, and this was before the. Russian website. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, before Libgen, yeah. Developed, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and he I said, "Well, you could write Joan and see if she has a copy. You you know, say you'll give her a lot for it." And she didn't have any copies herself mm. left and and on the internet, like on 
you know, on, at the secondhand bookstores, the, a, a hard back copy of read my desire was 200 and some dollars. Like crazy. it was really crazy. Yeah. Uh, and now it's back in print because of Verso. I think Verso. Verso. It was MIT book. Or it was MIT. I was going to say, I think it was, was it an October book initially? It was, it yeah. was. And you know, what's interesting. We, the series at Northwestern that Slavoj and Adrian and I do, we, we tried to get them to put it back into print in that series. And they, I don't know, they didn't want to do it. So, hmm. But I think it's made a lot of money for Verso, and it's re, reissuing. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, it's um, I was this was my um, I think I had uh every chapter on a PDF. So for the podcast, I like I purchased this like when it was available on Verso, and this is the first time I'm reading, my like the the book copy of it, and oh, just, oh good, just not, good. not just my my PDFs right. with all my with all my notes from grad school. Um, so on thirteen of uh, sorry, not thirteen, page one thirteen of the uh, the Verso uh copy what these photographs explain in here she puts a uh, a hyphen in uh in explain and doesn't write the word explain she writes it as p-l-a-n-e um what these photos explain i am now claiming what they display for us uh like right like a plane of uh you know existence or or right uh, right 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 yeah or, or just or physical manifestation i think she means plane of existence yeah yeah or or, yeah. or, or, or for physical right yeah the uh, is, uh, what so uh, wh- what these photographs explain, I am now claiming what they display for us is the utilitarian fantasy itself. The fantasy, as we have said, is ultimately supported by the supposition that there is an other who enjoys a certain and useless pleasure. We might say then that this useless pleasure becomes useful in securing and sustaining the utilitarian effort. It continues on page 115. In other words, the pleasure of the of the other is very subtly affirmed and denied when in the utilitarian fantasy it is retroactively posited as cause of the subject's desire. The simultaneous affirmation and denial is what splits the subject of the fantasy. And uh, there again, I think actually is a, a, a quilting point is implicit. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. um, and, and, you know, uh, the, she was very, so in my, and, and this actually also goes back to, I don't think I made this connection until now. So this is, uh, my thought process unfolding live, uh, which is that, uh, for my dissertation, which I think she, um, she wanted me to look at, um, in the project for scientific psychology, how, um, Freud talks about trauma as uh, as a series, and the etiology of trauma that he gets in there is uh, retroactive, going from uh, like a later. I mean, we, we talked about this before, but like the later um, event ca- causing the first event. So it's not uh, trauma is not a teleology. It's not the traumatic event happened. It's not when I got in the car accident. And and then you know you, uh, like I deal from it teleologically. It's there. There's something banal later, which is I mean this is true. Um, my breath is not fresh because when I was in the hospital, I, my right, jaw was broken. Right, right. I could not brush my teeth, and right. that is like that's how that is the my confrontation with the that that event because I don't remember it. For right. one, but but right. but that's the. But, but you that, remember your bad breath. But I remember my bad breath all the time yeah. that that is yeah. happening. Yeah, and yeah. that like and in and again, it doesn't make me remember it or see it, but it kind of, it makes the event like for me. It actually, right, it actually, right, right, it, right, you know, right, and that's right. and 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 she, you know, and here she's talking about uh, a similar structure, you know, obviously uh, vis a vis um, fantasy, but it's this 
again, this retroactive positing as the cause of, uh, of desire. And that, um, that, that structure and that, like that logic is very important to her. And it's, um, it, I, I think it kind of, I mean, that's actually maybe another thing that runs through this book is, is, I mean, it's not, it's not just it's not just the the desire, but like the the retroactivity of it. Yeah, retroactive. I think that's right. Like yeah. Noctreglikite, I think is yeah. really important yeah. for her. Um, yeah, I think that you know what what's interesting is the way you mentioned when you in the quotation you read utilitarianism. I mean, mm. this this is really this chapter is really it's interesting. Every every chapter gets a different target. Yeah. <laughs> and the target here is, I think, Bentham and utilitarianism, right? This right, notion right. that we can reduce everything to its utility and then that way give the greatest happiness to the greatest number, right? Like, right. like, And what she does is she links utilitarianism. It has a fantasy, which then ends up becoming colonial because you want to extend the greatest good to the greatest number. So you mm-hmm. you embark on the colonial enterprise. And then... But what what's at work in that is a certain fantasy that Clarembeau's obsession with the non-useful clothing is mm. gets revealed. You know that, that so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and again, I think it's such a great point that the not that you tell the fantasy of utilitarianism is for the non-useful, right? right like, right. Like that that that. And what she really gets at is how things things never just want what they. Th- think that they want right like mm-hmm, the, the, mm-hmm. The, that they always are they're always going after something that undermines their position so utilitarianism is pursuing what's not useful just like the panoptic gaze is pursu- if it existed is pursuing mm-hmm. what resists that ga- look right so yeah i think that's her that's really the with this driving thread that the that things aren't just cause they're not just the pure effect of a simple cause that the cause actually causes a inversion or a disruption that then creates something new she yeah and she does this i mean we didn't talk about this but in the orthopsychic subject in the first chapter this is what she talks about with uh conscience is that like if you accept uh this is on page 25 i just want to mention this because it's really I think really relevant to the late to the later chapter um, that uh, if we, so, okay. So this is her quoting from Freud and page 25 quoting from Freud um, that uh, where are we? Okay. If we were to admit the claims thus asserted by our conscience that desire conforms to, or always falls within the law, it would allow, I'm sorry, it would follow on the other hand that prohibition would be superfluous. And on the other, the fact of conscience would remain unexplained. On the one hand, prohibition would be superfluous. Foucault agrees. Once the law is conceived as primarily positive, as producing the phenomena it scrutinizes, the concept of a negative, repressive law can be viewed as an excess of psychoanalysis. On the other hand, the fact of conscience would remain unexplained. That is, there is no longer any reason for conscience to exist. It should, like prohibition, be superfluous. And what I I think I, um, there's this, what I what I like in this is that there's a, there's this line uh, in the song "Graceless" by the National that I think is a really really good like one sentence summary for like what's what's psycho what psychoanalysis on about. It's on about how it's the side effects that save us. Yeah, and 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 it's the like like that which you you oh you take that to be superfluous. You think that's waste. That's the point. 
Like right. that's, that's where, right. that's where the enjoy, that's where the enjoyment is, or that's right. where that's like the thing that you're going to disregard is the, is it's actually, it's actually holding it together. And I exactly. think, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 It's a great point. And then, and so then Clarembeau becomes this important figure for her mm-hmm. because he's focused precisely on what doesn't, what is irreducible to use, right? Yeah. What's wasteful. And that's the clothing that he's drawn to that. And that yeah. becomes, and that perversion, that fetishism ends up being in her mind, a disruption of the colonialist project, which she sees as, you know, implicated in, in utilitarianism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's excellent. I think, I think, we, I think, um, cause you said this to me before that, that this was the, the essay that you thought didn't fit, but I now are, are I, feel I, like- I think that was to- that was stupid. <laughs> me to say that, yeah, I think I think that's totally wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's totally wrong. That's I mean, funny. <laughs> it's yeah. I just think I think it all fits together. I, actually, which is which, it would be good if one essay didn't fit because that would <laughs> that would prove point. the point. Yeah. But I don't I don't think that's that's true. I mean, actually, I think you could maybe make the argument that sex and the euthanasia of reason fits the least, even though mm-hmm. I think everyone thinks it's the most important essay in the. Well, it's the um, it's the dead from Dubliners for this book. I, I right. would say because right. you right. you said you said it's more episodic, so more like a short story cycle. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah. No, that that's that, that that's interesting. I mean, yeah, certainly. Well, maybe because of the. I mean, we're not. There's still we're still two chapters away from that. Um, but like I think we're it, three chapters away, three chapters away. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. I think this is going to be to be continued. <laughs> to be co- <laughs> All right. Well, uh, do you want to quilt it here? Todd McGowan? I think we should quilt it. Yeah. I, I think the lesson is read everything by Joan Kopchak that you can read. I support that lesson. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Uh, to be continued, to be continued uh, over and out, Ryan over and out. 